You are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is the Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that, and like you, right now. So be encouraged. And let your light shine. Well, let me get some stats first. How long were you married? 21 years, maybe. So we were married in 86. He left in 07. And you didn't get divorced till 2010? Yeah, so it took a while. <laughs> and all your kids were grown, or was Michael no, still in No, Michael high was 13. He was at oh, a yeah. really hard age. How Aaron old were the was girls? 17, and Wendy had just gone off to university. So she was 19. Why the three-year process? Well, it took about a year for him to actually say that he wanted a divorce. Kept kind of making it seem like we were going to get back together. Meanwhile, he was buying a house for his lady and I didn't know. I mean, but God had way. It's amazing because everything just kind of came out, all the stuff. It was like being in Peyton Place. It really was. It was sort of like, is this my life? I had been this, you know, little uptight church lady that people kind of looked up to in a lot of ways so it was like is this my life I can't it was surreal it really was do you feel like you're fully recovered I think when I got to 10 years it felt like something really shifted a lot was just in the way of sort of like a weight wasn't there anymore I just feel like a lot of the pain of it had gone but, you know, like if I dwelt on it or thought about it enough, you can still feel really sad because it's not what, you know, you want for your life. But I'm not one of these people that sort of think, you know, you just have some counselling and it's all over. I do think that it's a process and it takes quite a bit of time. I would say the really painful stuff and the grieving is mostly over. I mean, I still think it's sad for our family, but the fact that God has more than... It's hard to say this because I know it doesn't happen for everyone. It's not a given that God will give back everything that seems to have been taken away from you and it will be even better than before. I don't think that's a given. So it feels hard to say that because that doesn't happen for everybody. But I know that it has for me. So I'm really grateful for my life now and I don't want, you know, like I didn't want to go back, you know what I mean? Okay. It'll be good. Okay. <laughs> Welcome Shine Podcast listeners. It's Bethy. It's Katie. And we are here in the middle of the month of love with our favorite Miss Marnie Broderick. Welcome to the Love Podcast this season, Marnie. <laughs> Ooh, thanks. I'm glad to be here. We're so happy you're here. Yeah. So this is our third love month. We've done this three oh, sessions. Wow. Have you been going that long? Yeah. That, that's three Valentine's even. days. And we're in the Hit thick me. of interviewing couples who have been married and just what the marriage is in the thick of life and kids and all of that fun stuff. 
but we want to remember those whose love stories didn't turn out the way they expected. And so Marnie is here today. She was on our podcast, season two, episode 49. If you missed hers, check it out. It was August 29th. We had to wait two years for her to come back from New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And she has so graciously joined us today in the podcast to talk about her experience with divorce. Marnie and her husband, Mike, were married for 21 years. They had three children. Michael was 13, Aaron was 17, and Wendy was 19 when the news broke. And it was a shock to Marnie that Mike was leaving. So can you take us back to that place and that season of your life and tell us what happened? Yeah, really, you sort of think that that a marriage breakdown happens over many years. And I guess it did in some ways, you know, I I think our marriage traveled along a fairly normal kind of trajectory, like most other marriages. I always thought we had a great marriage and was really, it was a wonderful way that God brought us together. It was very much a godly thing. The marriage wasn't awful for years, you know, and then gradually came to a crisis. It wasn't like that. There was one year which I call the perfect storm year. There were just like many circumstances came together at one time to kind of create this circumstance that, yeah, just brought everything to a crisis really. So it was 2006. And it was obvious that Mike was very unhappy. I don't know, I just thought it was all the stress of his work. He was the CEO of a very successful software company, wrote software and had done very well and was at the top of his game and but there was a lot of a lot of stress involved. After he left he told me no, he loved work, he loved going to work, he hated coming home. So (laughs) that was you know, that was pretty devastating. Yeah, so he was very unhappy. So when I'm saying the perfect storm, part of the perfect storm was, well, close to 50, which is kind of a middle age crisis. He had sort of um, got to the top, won all kinds of awards and accolades and very prestigious business magazines and things about his company and the wonderful things that they had done. And so 2004, he was Entrepreneur of the Year for Northeastern Ohio and just a lot of accolades. So he was kind of like at the peak. And then it was sort of like, well, where do you go from here is kind of, I think part of was part of it for him. But also what was happening spiritually was probably the biggest thing was that in our church that we had been a part of all our married life, but he had gotten saved in that community. And the pastor had been like a, a dad to him, like a spiritual father. Over about five years, it just all fell apart. And it was really devastating, more for him than me, way more for him, partly because he had seen himself playing a major role in that church in time. The long-term plan was start a company, make it successful, sell the company, and then do some kind of thing that he wanted to do for himself, like some kind of ministry. It was always felt that, yeah, part of that would be a church that we were involved with all that time. So it was a, it was pretty devastating when it seemed like he was sort of passed over, but we were just kind of put on the shelf. So we were sort of told that 
they were just going to love us and which meant they totally ignored us for a whole year <laughs> which was hard and then we just kept thinking that you know they'd eventually come to us and that you know there'd be reconciliation and that there'd be healing and that the church would heal and grow again and all of that but that never happened so we did end up leaving and that was pretty devastating mm. I think we left in 2004 2005 I mean we went straight away to a new church and got involved there it was a very safe kind of environment you know he just became very disillusioned with God's people and Christianity Christians but ultimately God I remember him saying to me Marnie who do you know anybody who's done more for God than me and that was kind of where he was at. It was a bad place that he was in. Yeah. He got to the point where even though he was still going to church and he was on leadership at this new church and sort of making them all the right noises because he knew what to say, he pretty much was really angry at God and walked away from God pretty much. I mean, he would never deny God, but so he was mad at God and I was all part of that, yeah, because... I didn't feel the same way. He started just acting totally out of character, spending a lot of time up in Cleveland, um, not coming home. I wouldn't know where he was. He would just be gone, wouldn't come home till like really late in the morning and I'd be lying awake imagining him in a ditch somewhere or because he started drinking and he had a beautiful jag that had been like his all-time car that he'd always wanted all his life and he had it so he would drive pretty fast it was terrifying imagining where he could be and what he could be doing and and not really knowing and when he would come home and if I'd ask him about it and say you know what's going on and you know you'd smell alcohol and everything he would just be so angry and defensive and you just couldn't even broach the subject so it was it was hard then one weekend he went and I didn't know where he was and he just never came home I rang, you know, like a, well, from our old church, this guy who's really involved in ministry and his wife, he and his wife are involved in a lot of marriage counselling and stuff like that. And he's always been someone that, that we were close to and that I respected. And I rang him, I said, I don't know what to do. I don't know where my husband is. I can't talk to anybody or ask anybody or because he would be really angry if I, yeah, but this is what's been going on and I told him and he came out to the house and then Mike showed up when he was there so this guy confronted Mike and Mike got super angry and just packed bags and said I'm leaving I'm out of here I'm gone and that was it and I said well what about the kids he said oh I'll pick them up after school you don't need to I'll pick them up and tell them I'm leaving for them Mike was away a lot so they didn't realise that he was not gone on a trip because I just kind of covered up for Mike all the time. Terrible thing to do. Yeah, and kind of swept it all under the rug like God would... He would come around. God would turn it around. God would make it right. God would... In the end, everything would come right. And I think it would have, you know, like I think that God would have reached Mike and that Mike... Because Mike did have a very close relationship with God at one time and that relationship was, you know, everything to him. So I think it would have happened except that up in Cleveland he was going and drinking and with a girl that was involved in kind of the circle of 
professionals that they were all involved with. Well, she was in, in that setting. She wasn't one of the professionals I found out later. I, that was one of the lies as well. Mm. <laughs> so I was never told about any of that. It was just everything at home was the wrong and the problem. As the year, that was in March, as the year went on, there were different revelations about what was going on and about what he had been doing. So, as I say, it's like the perfect storm because we had become wealthy very suddenly and this particular woman um, knew that, knew that he had money. (laughs) So she was in a really bad situation. She needed saving out of that situation. And Mike was one of these people that loves to be like the the heroic kind of benefactor. He was always in his family. He was the person that fixed everybody's problems and solved all the family dramas. He was the fix-it man in every way in in our home. You know, he knew how to fix everything physically and, you know, just in the families. He's a very, very, very competent person. And, you know, when we were on the mission field, that was a role that he loved to play. So it was, like, devastating and something that was totally... It wasn't even imaginable. I just... (laughs) I couldn't ever, ever... I remember um, one of his family members saying, well, do you think there's somebody else involved? And I said, no, I know that Mike, he's not himself. He's doing crazy things that he never normally would do. He's doing things that are out of character, but he would never do that. To us, he would never do that to me because I just totally, absolutely trusted him and his faithfulness, you know. Yeah, I just, it was never a thought in my mind. I never ever experienced jealousy before. I never experienced the thought that that he might look at somebody else or think somebody, you know, that I never had experienced any of that. So when he left, you realize there's things in you that you never actually understood because they weren't ever put to the test, you know what I mean? Like that was never an environment that I was in that I would experience those things. So like the anger, the rage, the jealousy, I used to, in my mind, I would imagine myself going to the house that he bought for her and opening the door and being violent with them. You know, you just imagine the awful things that you could do, and I I wanted to do them. I knew I never would, but you realise what's in you, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of think, well, you know, those things are very obvious about his son, about what he's doing. He's doing all those outward things like drinking and acting like a person that he would not have even wanted to associate with at one time, you know. So those things are very outward, but I was seeing all the ugliness that's in me that is potentially there, but it's never come out because, you know, I was in such a safe Christian environment and all that sort of thing. So you're sort of like, well, like it's his sin is obvious, but I'm a fallen person too, you know. So it's like dealing with all of that. So the rug just totally got pulled out from underneath you and the kids. It was just the unimaginable. You know, you just like, you just can't imagine that happening to your life. And I'd be thinking, is this really me? You know, like, I can't believe this is me. This feels like somebody on television, somebody's messed up life. 
During that season, who was God for you in the midst of all of that chaos? Well, I have to say he was the very breath (laughs) of my life because I don't think I could get out of bed. I didn't want to get out of bed, you know, like I just wanted to sleep. I didn't want to get up in the morning, but I did. I got up every morning and sat in the same chair beside my bed and read the Psalms. And the Psalms were like, they were my voice. So it was like David, the things that he would say to God, some of them are like really terrible, you know. Dash my enemy's children on the rocks and, you know, like really awful things. And I couldn't say awful things to God, (laughs) but David did, you know, he put words for me of all the awful things that were in my heart that God can cope with. Mm-hmm. He's got big shoulders and he knows what's in there anyway. And it felt like the Psalms were my voice, you know. The th- they said the things that I couldn't even barely whisper, but it's like they shouted them for me. The word became my breath, really. In Psalm 62, where it talks about, you know, him being your shelter and a hiding place. And well, so many Psalms about, you know, under the shadow of his wings and how he's a tower to run into. That's what he was. I could picture myself running into him. And I think the only thing that kind of kept me going was just running to God with everything. I'm sounding super spiritual, but that's what it was. I had to run to him for everything because otherwise I couldn't even keep my head up. It would feel like for like very short times, say if you went to a movie or you were reading a book or listening to an audio book or something like that, for a short time you'd sort of be outside of what was going on. And then, you know, you would come back and it would be like this absolute tidal wave just over you of remembering this is me, this is my life now, this is what's happened to me. And it would—it felt like so many times a day that would happen over and over again. Like we live by the sea in New Zealand, my family does. And so I've experienced a lot of times where you're out in the waves and you get dumped by a wave and you feel like you're in a washing machine. You don't know which way is up and which way is down and it's really disorienting and and you, you can't get your breath. And that's how it felt like over and over again. I just... For five years, I have to say, I mean, like, people didn't see me crying. I used to bawl my eyes out in the shower. That was a great place. I could yell in the shower because it sort of muffles you. But I would just cry all the time, especially in my car, because I'd be by myself in my car. And it felt like I was never, ever going to stop crying. And when was there ever going to be no more tears, you know? I remember saying to one of my friends that got divorced, she's a really close friend in New Zealand, and I said, Jeannie, like, how long did it take before you didn't cry and before you started feeling normal again or like yourself again? And I think she said five years, and I think it was probably that before I stopped crying. (laughs) It took about 10 years before I felt like, I don't know, it felt like God switched something. It felt like he said, okay, that's enough. Yeah, did it really feel, felt like 10 years. I don't know why, but it almost to the day it felt like he did something when 10 years, like, okay, that's enough. <laughs> so walk us through, you know, you talked about your grieving process, but in those 10 years, what did the healing process look like for you? Because I, I can't imagine 
you're trying to deal with the loss and the pain of this, but you also have kids yeah. that you're dealing with who were probably just as flabbergasted by the whole situation yeah. that you were. So I can't imagine the pressure of trying to like hold it together for them and still walk through this process of grieving and, and getting to the place of healing. I had, I mean, like I did try the counseling thing and it was helpful to a degree. Like I went to a, like a divorce recovery type group that was a disaster. But not to say that other people shouldn't do that, you know. But I decided that I was going to go to a church where nobody would know me, you know. I didn't want... I think I was so conscious, too, of... I don't know, it felt very vulnerable being single. I felt really vulnerable. I didn't want... I didn't want any involvement. I mean, some people feel like they can go straight back into another relationship. It was not even something that I... There was no way. <laughs> so for me, it was like, I just don't want to be even in a situation where I have to deal with. So I went to this divorce recovery thing and it felt like all these guys were like stalking other, <laughs> some of the ones oh. in the group, you know, you had to say on one to 10, like, how joyful are you at the moment? And it was like a couple of the people in the group said like, oh, you're supposed to be one to 10. They said, oh, I'm a 12. And I felt like saying... I just wanted, I wanted to throw up. I'm sorry, but I can go anything from a one to a maybe a six in any given, however many times in any given day, but I'm not going to say that I'm ever a twelve. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm not really getting it. I'm done with this. <laughs> I'm done with here. this. It's just a whole lot of people messing around that aren't really mean, getting down to business and being real mm. about what they're going through. And I needed that. But anyway, I did get down to business mostly with God. So I feel like the healing process was very much that. And then after about five years, I could think straight enough to get tickets and actually get myself to New Zealand and not feel... I mean, I just felt so ashamed. Just horrific shame of letting everybody down. But it was more that shame that we had been really solid, or well, seemingly solid Christians on the mission field six years. A lot of people looked up to us. We were spiritual parents to so many people in the Philippines. And, you know, we discipled so many folks. And you just felt like, oh, how do you even begin to explain what happened? And and so I didn't want to go back to New Zealand because, like, I'm the only one in my family that's gotten divorced, and most of the, and they're not Christians. <laughs> it's like, whoa. And I don't mean just my immediate family. I mean my larger family. I'm the only one that's gotten divorced. And we were the ones that, you know, were sort of, like, put on pedestals in some ways. Yeah, so it was there was so much shame. But when I went to New Zealand, you know, like I thought it was going to be terrible and everyone would want to talk about it and all of that. But everyone, my family, they were just awesome. That was a huge healing process. And God really met me there. So one of the things was I felt really disqualified. I felt like, how can I even ever serve God again in any kind of ministry or capacity because I'm divorced? Like, if anyone knows that I'm divorced, they're going to think, oh, you know, we really don't want her on our 
church leadership or our church this or our church that. Not that I necessarily wanted to be, but, you know, I just felt totally disqualified because I feel like my calling has always been like a nurturing kind of a thing, like more discipleship type stuff. That's what I love to do. So it's sort of like, how do you do that? You know, you're supposed to walk the talk and <laughs> I felt disqualified. So when I was in New Zealand, I had an amazing experience. It's a long, it could be a long, it's a whole night's story, just that one itself. But the bottom line is God reminding me who qualified me in the first place and who called me in the first place. Mm -hmm. And did he take that calling away? Right. And I'm making it all about me if I'm saying I'm not qualified as if I did something to be qualified to earn the right to be a disciple or whatever, you know, I, it was all me. Right, that's so <laughs> good. Know, that was wonderful. And um, <laughs> yeah, so the story in John 21, where Jesus takes Peter right back to where he was called in the first time. And it was like me, I was Peter. I bawled my eyes out, bawled my eyes out. John 21, just Jesus looking across that fire, the charcoal fire, where he'd cooked. Peter Fish. There was a charcoal fire not long before where he was warming himself and he denied Christ and caught the eye of Jesus as he was. And that must have stuck with him, that look of betrayal. So Jesus brings him right back to the same place where he was called the first time and looks across the fire at him. It must have been painful, like Jesus didn't spare him the pain of it. But he knew that pain of it needed to be there for his healing. He said, feed my sheep. And it's like God was saying that to me, mm-hmm. you know, feed my sheep. I said, well, God, does that mean I'm going to get sheep? Or does it mean I'm going to disciple people? And it's like both. <laughs> so when I came home is when I got my first sheep. If I'm going to say anything to anybody, it's about not in the sense of advice, but just I think the best thing and the only thing that you can do is run to God. I was and just thinking about that. Yeah. The difference between the way that you and Mike handled disappointment. Yeah. That Mike was so disappointed because he had imagined his life in the ministry to look different. Yeah. You know, or people to respond differently or his relationship with God to look differently and being just disappointed with God in general, you know, just being upset yeah. that this is not what I wanted it to look like. You know, there are different ways that we play out and handle our disappointments. And I was just loving so much that you were just like, I was so sad. And then I went to Jesus and I read the Psalms. You know what I mean? The idea that you are continually moving toward Him in your disappointment. Yeah, because I think I knew Him enough to know that He is a safe place. And I tell myself all the time, what's not to love about God, you know? (laughs) He's totally trustworthy. He's never going to betray us. And He doesn't reject us. And He doesn't... He doesn't make us eat the scraps from the floor. Right. We don't beg. He is lavish. I think one of my big questions probably has always been, God, you gave me the grace to be able to move towards you. Mm-hmm. How come Mike didn't have the grace? You know, Why didn't he get the grace? He just seemed to move away from God more and more. And even when he was trying to come back to God later, it still didn't seem like he had grace, you know? So talk about the dichotomy of walking in hope 
with your future and still having this sadness about how your family ended up. And, you know, Mike died tragically and it's just a very sad ending for that but there's still hope and there's still redemption and god can you can you talk about the tension between the deep deep sadness and disappointment and the hope that god has for you yeah i don't think i've ever gone to hopelessness which is obviously what mike did i think that he felt like there wasn't a way out and there wasn't hope at all And I think that's probably the hardest place for anybody to be in ever. I think my expectation initially for hope was hope that things would all go back, that we would find a way to get back to each other again. And that's even something that he expressed. But I think I got beyond that. The hope wasn't that the marriage would be restored and that everything would go back to how it had been. The hope just became in in God (laughs) and who he is. You know, that's not something that's going to change and it's not something that anyone can have an effect on. If you've got hope in God, it's a solid thing. It's not something that's going to get whipped out from underneath you. And it's not dependent on your expectations or you making it happen. It's a hope that... Yeah, it's totally real because of who God is. It's all on him, isn't it? It's all on his side. And he just calls us to hope. But I don't think there was a time that I ever was like there was no hope. I know that there were times that I did imagine like being in my car and just going super fast towards a wall or something and just because of the pain, (laughs) you just didn't want to have that anymore. But you knew you'd never do it because what a... I mean, it was bad enough what's happened to your kids already. How would you do that to your kids, you know? But I don't think I ever would have anyway, even if there hadn't have been kids, because I think I always didn't feel the total hopelessness. And, yeah, God has proven that he is someone I can put my hope in because he has restored more than what I ever even imagined, you know, like my life. The things that I'm doing are sort of what I would would have imagined in some kind of fairy tale life of mine. Being able to steward a farm and just be involved with animals and plants and, and my grandkids and now having my daughter and my son and their families on the farm. Yeah, my other daughter in New Zealand who's, you know, just doing, they're just all doing so well and they all love the Lord and it's beautiful seeing So you feel like your kids are going to be like totally crushed and destroyed. They'll just be another statistic. That was the scary part. But that's not what they found God for themselves in a more real way than they ever knew before in the whole process. I think they had to, you know. So really there was lots of grace there. And just so many people were praying for my kids. I think that made a big difference. So Chris is doing the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And last week he talked about two really hard things. He talked about lust and he talked about divorce. One of my divorced friends texted me afterwards and was like, she said, I just wanted to sink down in my seat because I felt like everyone was looking at me. And I I was like, that's not true at all. But, you know, you talk about the shame that 
comes with being divorced and being in church and being a Christian. And, you know, we just want to let our listeners out there know, if you are divorced, we're happy you're at church and you are loved and you are welcomed and people are not looking at you. Yeah. We're just so happy you're here and you're not disqualified. There's a place for you and you belong. And I think we as a church need to keep reminding people and telling people that you're not disqualified. And you you said that perfectly about that would assume that you earned it in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're all sitting in there, fallen sinners, saved by grace. We just want all of our church family to know that if your love story didn't have a happy ending, Mm. that there is still hope and there's redemption in God and that you matter and there's a place for you. Yeah. In the midst of your divorce, in the church that you were at, did you find that you had people to connect to, relationships there? Yeah. There were um, people that were just so kind and talked a lot. For me and yeah gave me a, a place to just vent sometimes I did I had um, several really good people like that Mel was yeah she was always there and I we talked to her an awful lot then pastor's wife at the church I was going to they were very supportive and That's yeah good. I mean I think a lot of it is yourself the way you feel but I don't feel that way anymore oh that's good I honestly don't I just feel like, you know, when you were saying she just wanted to sink down into your chair and you're talking about shame. Yeah. The idea that all of these end up connecting to isolation. Yeah. And how it's easy. Just, you know, you're saying it like you do this mentally. You do it kind of to yourself. It's not necessarily people outside yeah. who are wanting to judge or shame, but like the idea where I have to isolate or I have to yeah. hide. I think I am a little self-conscious and cognizant of it's just awkward for couples, like a divorce, per- it feel like it is. <laughs> yeah. Because people, especially if they don't know you that well, I don't think that happens when you're with people that you know really well and they know you really well and they've walked through stuff with you. But there's just an awkward sort of thing. It's sort of like, well, here's this single person, like what kind of d- dynamic do they bring to the group? It's an awkward thing. Mm. Well, a threesome is always awkward anyway, mm. but it's even more awkward if you're divorced and you know there's a married couple or whatever. I probably go overboard to try not to put out any signals that would be difficult for people. Or I'm lucky my family have always come around me and been very supportive of me, like my kids especially, you know, like my kids have always. I've got friends who've been divorced and stuff and have been not lovingly treated by their kids. And I just think that would be even harder, you know, such a hard thing already, that then if somehow you're rejected by your kids as well, that makes it even harder. So I'm grateful. So what would you say to our listeners out there who are still in the grieving process or still haven't felt like they've turned the corner and have experienced healing from their divorce. Do you have any advice for folks out there who are still reeling from their divorce? I do think there's no miracle, you know, cure. It'd be nice. But yeah, I do think it's a process. And it's sort of like going round and round, not kind of like a straight upward line. It feels like more, you know, you come back to something 
that was painful and it's less painful the next time. And, you know, you sort of think, oh, haven't I done with that? I think it's okay to say this is a process. I'm dealing with it at a different level. I know that I'm having to deal with the same thing again. I think people get discouraged because they think that, oh, they should have been healed from that and it should be done and dusted, you know. But I think that it is kind of like a process and I think that it does take time and lots of grace and courage. <laughs> I, I mean, like, just running to God. Is, he's got big arms and he's very safe. Well, Marnie, you've been such a beautiful example to us. Yeah. Even though you felt rage and anger and wanted to do violent things, you you really carried yourself with such grace and dignity in the whole situation and how you handled the divorce and new family members. And you just were always so gracious. And that's that takes a lot of courage to be as gracious as you were, even though it was a really hard situation. And so thank you for your example of being gracious and walking through hard, difficult things and still pursuing God. I think it's good for us to see people that have to go through hard things and they're still seeking God. So you've been a beautiful example to us watching your life, and we really appreciate you for that. Yeah. Thanks. I have to say, I'm way better off for the hard things. I am. There's so much that I couldn't have learned without it, going through it. I'm grateful for going through the hard things. (laughs) I am. I can say that. Isn't that such a bizarre... I think about that. I was just reading, I read a devotional to my kids about different women in the world who love Jesus in their spheres, you know. The one woman we read today, she was a missionary in the 40s. World War II broke out, and the Japanese went to their missions, took she and her husband, killed her husband, and put her in a Japanese camp. And she was in the camp for four years, finally was released, went home to the U.S. four years later. And I mean, hadn't been in the U.S. for years before that because they were in missions. Went home, and she ended up writing a lot and being interviewed, and we were closing the devotionals and she was saying, I wouldn't change anything. What I have gone through has were the most awful moments of my life, but I have learned so much about the person of Jesus and the character of Jesus. Yeah. And I've learned so much about his presence that I would not change yeah. those things. And I mean, you leave moments <clears throat> like this, you know, watching, you know, your story and reading this story about this woman, you know, the normal person would say, what? That doesn't make any sense. But there's just something about those arduous journeys where we come out on the other side and it's almost like you can't explain it, but there's just something that makes you so different inside and your character so different inside. And you just reminded me of her saying, love Jesus and I'm better for knowing him this way. Yeah, there was was stuff that I wouldn't have learned. Unless I'd been in that, you know, situation where he was, you know, like my hiding place, my place of safety, my refuge. Because I'd never had, he'd never had to be that before. Yes. Yeah. Well, Marty, we really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing your story and are grateful for your witness that you are to our church and to our community. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.